Okay, good evening. We are together here at the second part of the power and impact of music. And the question we'll be exploring this evening is, can music be treif? Is there such a thing as kosher and uh, non-kosher music? This is a common question and conversation that comes up when uh, speaking with high school students, boys or girls. An ongoing theme throughout the ages in the Frum High School is the conversation of secular Goyish music. Practically speaking, there are a few categories of music that technically, halachically, are clearly problematic. We're not going to spend time on, on that area of the discussion. But the poskim speak about shiri agovim, shiri taiva, music that is composed in a way where it's trying to tap into that animalistic part of the human being, you know, lust and desire and speaking about relationships in a very, very physical, very animalistic way. Those are shiri agovim, that is one type of music which we feel is not only better to stay away from, but halachically, there's a real issue. Category two, and this is quite uh, intuitive, any music that's religious in nature. Obviously, it's religious in a Jewish sense. That's not problematic. But if it's religious in a different sense, a different ideology, a different uh, view of, of reality, a different deity, obviously those types of songs are, are usher as well. So we have shiria govim, songs that create a taiva, a lust, and then we have religious songs that are obviously um, not what we want to get into. The broader topic is putting those two categories aside within the, the massive world of music. Are there differences in who composes the song, if it's a melody that was first composed by, who knows, hundreds of years ago, someplace in Russia, and now it's made its way into the, the Jewish culture, is there anything wrong with using that same melody? Does the soul, does the neshama of the composer somehow infiltrate the music to the degree where that when I'm listening to your composition, I'm almost getting influenced by you. That could be positive, that could be negative. These are the areas we'll be exploring and discussing in Mirta Shem. We'll start off with the Kuzari, the Kuzari going back to the 11th century. The uh, conversation takes place between the Chavar and the king of the Kuzars. The Chavar explains that the Chachmas HaMusica was something that was the pride of our nation. The wisdom of music, the chachma, is something that we did not take lightly. But rather the greatest people in the nation, the B'nai Levi, they were in charge. They spent their time, they spent their lives developing and enhancing and magnifying the songs, the music that was played in the base of Migdash. However, explains the Chavar to the king of the Kuzars, 
as time passed, historically, the only time we have this power, that pristine, pure form of shira, is when it's treated with respect, when there's a reverence for the music. If over time, though, that becomes soiled, it becomes contaminated, people get involved within that realm who don't have the same lofty aspirations utilizing the power of music to uplift themselves and others, at that point music has a yurida. It descends down into a lower area. The king of the Kuzar answers back to the Chavar and says, I have no doubt that in the times of the Holy Temple, there was such a complete and wholesome form of shira, it would uplift, it would, it would awaken the soul of all who heard it. However, the king says, if I was a betting man, I would assume that nowadays, yarda im chashivusa, there has been a descent, that feeling of respect and reverence almost trying to safeguard the realm and the world of music, it's uh, no longer is treated with that same love, that same care. And therefore, it may not have the same positive impact on the human soul. This is a conversation we find in the Kuzari. We fast forward a few hundred years. We find in the Reish's Chachma. Reish's Chachma was one of the great disciples of Ramosha Cordovero, very much of the, the Kabbalistic legacy. And the Reish's Chachma says, Just like there's this universal music taking place in all different dimensions of reality like we spoke about last week, there's this awakening of music within all of the celestial heights. We have to emulate the angels and try to awaken that song within ourselves. For what purpose? In order to try to connect with our Creator. And then he has an amazing line, very insightful. Ki hashir gorim hadevekus. Literally that means, music brings devekus, a connection, a closeness. Ki hashir gorim hadevekus. And that's true if it's connecting me to Hashem, the source of, of all good. It's connecting one to Ruchnias, to that, that spiritual power in the world. But on the other hand, says the Reishas Chachma, because Hashir Garim Devekis, because music connects me, if the music itself, the songs, the lyrics, consist of things that are inappropriate, that are animalistic, that are actually lowering me instead of uplifting me, then it's also Shir Garim Devekis. That music attaches me but to a very different concept, a very different lifestyle, a very different ideology. So there's this emotional association, there's a relationship that's created when it comes to Shira, 
when it comes to song, when it comes to music. This is probably the, the most difficult part of the conversation when you're speaking to either high school boys or high school girls and trying to explain, even if there's a song that may not be in one of those two categories that are officially problematic, and it's not lustful, it's not awakening animal desires, it's not religious in nature, but sheer Gaurim Devekis, we have to be very aware that the more we get into a particular musician or a band or even a, a type of music, there's now more and more of a connection of the Vegas to that culture. If it's that particular person who becomes somewhat of my, my idol, or it's just breaking barriers that I might have, healthy barriers surrounding me from the outside world, sheer garim devekis means now I'm more attached to the outside world. So the song itself may be totally fine and acceptable, it may be inspiring, it may be beautiful, but there has to be at least a recognition that there's a danger because the more I allow myself to indulge in any particular type of shira, I am allowing a devekis to occur as well. I have here a translation, source number 15, from the Piyazetz Nerebo. This is from his Sefer Hachsharas of Rechid, where he says that we see there are great talented musicians whose hearts are distant from Hashem. Music, he explains, is a form of expressing and exposing the neshama. There are feelings, there are almost a storm of emotions that might be going on within me, like we spoke about last week. Just like in the upper realms, you have shira in the deepest recesses of the soul, there's shira. And when I sing and I, and I listen to music and I enjoy music, I'm allowing that part of my soul to express itself. That can either be an incredibly uplifting, experience, or it could be degrading. It depends what I'm connecting myself to. He gives the example, you could have two different people where superficially, if you were to look at each one of them, they look very happy and excited. They're enjoying themselves. And from a distance, it's pretty much the same thing. I see this guy dancing at a chasana, <coughs> jumping up and down and getting really into it and sweating. And I see this guy dancing at a nightclub, jumping up and down, getting excited, getting into it. Superficially, it's pretty much the same thing. Obviously, we know it's not. If you understand what's happening within the human being, within the mind, within the heart, given the setting, given the circumstance. So one person is tapping into a kadusha and expressing that inner sanctity and the sheer garim devekis, it's connecting him with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, with the Vodas Hashem in a more beautiful and passionate way. And the other person, given his circumstance, might be just breaking barriers, allowing that innate humanity to become more aggressive and more animalistic. So the Eish Kodesh says, when it comes to song, when it comes to music, most of the time, 
Like we mentioned, there are a few exceptions, but most of the time, it's not intrinsically kadosh versus uh, tameh. It's not either good or bad. It's what I do with that experience, how I relate, how I react to the, the, the music that's going on around me and within me. The Ish Kodesh continues, he concludes by saying, because music is so powerful, if a person is not careful in channeling that, that energy in the right direction, it could actually have the influence and the impact to take somebody away from Kedusha. It could pull somebody off the derech, so to speak. What's the classic example of someone who was influenced by a treif, negative form of music? Huh? Acher. Alisha Benavuya, the great Tana, the author of Mishnayis. The Gemara in Chagiga has a whole discussion of what exactly happened to him. We know later on in life he, uh, he had a Yerida and he went off the Derech. How did that occur? So the Gemara in Chagiga says, Acher Mai. Zemer Yovani Lopasik Mipume. The Greek songs never left his mouth. Zemer Yovani Lopasik Mipume. The Marsha explains that because of his association with that culture, and not just the, the Chachma, the philosophy, other interesting things that he would dabble in, but there was almost an obsession with the music. And the music, the Greek music of the time, was, was destructive. It sounds like from the Gemara, maybe if he heard a song here and there, it wouldn't have had that same impact. But because Zemin lo posik mipume, it became such a lifestyle, it was a shira that was gorim devekis, he became connected to a different culture. That's what led Acher off the derech. I want to go back, we mentioned last week a very interesting piece from Shlomo Al-Kabetz, the author of L'Chadodi. He has a, a commentary on Megillus Esther, the Menos HaLevi, and we spoke about the idea of Shira being the language of the soul and how it's familiar because before the Neshama comes into this world, that's the reality that we're exposed to. In this piece, he addresses the following somewhat famous question, which is, when Achashverosh was throwing his elaborate party, what was the main intent of Achashverosh? To get the Jews to celebrate and to hopefully pull them away from, from Torah and the Voda. And therefore he made it as beautiful and lavish and, and you know, the, the delicacies and the the surroundings, the environment, the food, the drink, it was out of this world. It was going to a Pesach hotel on steroids. <laughs> it was incredible. The one thing that's not mentioned anywhere in the Megillah, although it has a very detailed description of everything that took place at the Suda Shalachash it doesn't mention that he had a band. There was no band. So it could be they spent so much money on the other things, there was no room, right, left financially. But at least you get a guy on the keyboard, do something, right? 
So the Menos HaLevi of Shlomo Akabitz answers as follows. He says, Achashverosh, his intent was to take the, the Jews and try to confuse them, try to move them away from Torah and Navoda. And therefore he had all of the Gashmias, everything to indulge in, that could hopefully assist in that plan and that strategy. However, he was concerned that if he also had music playing, there might be, throughout this incredible, massive party, there might be a moment or two when you have this gorgeous music playing in the background that a Jew would almost awaken from this, this slumber and be inspired by the music and start asking poignant questions as to what am I doing here? I don't really belong in this party. Right? This is not me. So because Achashverosh had this concern, he said, we're going to have everything, but we're not going to have music. Now, if you think about it, what kind of music would he have? Right? He would have hired Yaakov Shweki, he would have hired Mordechai Shapiro, and they would come and do a whole concert and lights in the background. So obviously he's not hiring Jewish musicians. He would have his Persian musicians playing non-Jewish Persian Goyesha music. So if that's the case, what was he concerned about? If anything, you could argue the other direction. And some actually ask this question on the Menos HaLevi. If the main intent of Achashverosh was, let's get these Jews off the derech, and part of the plan was actually trying to seduce them in all areas of immorality, so then utilize the power of Shira and play very enticing, very lustful music. What do we see from the Menos HaLevi? We see that even if a person is listening to secular Persian music that's filled with potential ideas of taiva and immorality, there's still a power within that shiro that could strike a chord, no pun intended, that could strike a chord within me to inspire me, to uplift me, to raise above the, the, the setting, the dynamic I find myself in presently. That's the power of music, even if the music is not classical Jewish music. Even Goyesha music can have an incredible impact on a person. See, often we make the mistake, and we, when we have this conversation, kosher music, treif music, we speak in terms that are very black and white, and we almost have this perspective that some music is good, some music is bad. When in reality, the way we view Shira the vast majority of the time is not so much what's happening outside of me, but it's more what's happening within me. The Shira itself, to utilize the analogy of the Vilna Gom, is like rain. When rain comes onto soil, so if there are seeds in that soil, they'll grow. If it has the right amount of nutrients and sunlight, water comes, those seeds will grow. 
What will sprout forth from the soil? It depends what was planted in there. You're going to have wheat, corn, and have fruit trees. It depends on what's within the soil. The same thing is true when it comes to music. Oftentimes, music itself is like the rain. It could be parv. It doesn't have to be bad or good, but it's a power, it's an energy. There's a koach of shira. What's inside of me that I'm either attempting to, to discover and, and, and bring out, what I'm allowing to come out, that's what determines whether or not this is a healthy experience of music and song or potentially unhealthy. We know Dr. Mengele Machshemo in his uh, infamous you know, pseudo-medical experiments that he would do, Mamish torturing people, torturing people. He had an experiment block in Auschwitz where they had different rooms and basically a torture chamber. What people don't know is that he was actually devoted to classical music. He had a passion, he had a love for classical music. There was an article in the Haaretz written by a doctoral student who spoke about how her mother survived Auschwitz. And she explained that her mother, before the war, was a pianist. And she was incredible. She had real talent and recognized by many as this up-and-coming star. And then when she was sent to Auschwitz, Dr. Mengele, looking over the records, saw that she was a pianist. So he himself, in the experiment block, he also had a music room. In that music room, he would indulge himself in classical music, and he played the violin. So he brought this lady into the music room. He had a piano there as well, and said, play for me. And she did, and he was taken aback by her talent. So basically, he used this woman throughout the war to accompany him as he played in his violin. She would play on the piano. And he had such a fierce, <clears throat> evil desire that every note should be played correctly that his attack dogs were trained to sense if the note was off. And you have this young Jewish lady starving, sick, being forced to play the piano for one of the most evil men alive. Whenever she would be off, the dog would pounce her. And Baruch Hashem, through her talent as a pianist, she survived the war, but with many scars all over her body, dog bites. With Aaron Feldman, who's the great Meshashiva in Yisrael in Baltimore, he quotes this article, and he writes that many people have this, this impression that the more culture, the more you're into music and art, right, the humanities, the more of that you have, the assumption is the more humane you are. Because these are good things, right? Classical music, it's sophisticated. It's uplifting. 
You see from this particular vignette, explains of Aaron Feldman, that music itself doesn't make you more human or less human. Rather, it's a force. If it's utilized for the spiritual, you can become more spiritual. If it's utilized for the animalistic, then I become more mundane. It's the rain that's going into the soil. What comes forth from the music is who I am inside of me. Right? If you picture a cow grazing in the field and you want to do a test, how can we make this cow more sophisticated? You have a wonderful idea. You have those massive you know, things that go around the ears and you play Beethoven and Mozart and you do that straight for a year and a half. What's going to happen after a year and a half? The cow is still going to be a cow. The music doesn't change a person. So this is, a, this is an idea when it comes to Shira. A lot depends on who we are and what's within us. There is an interesting question that's posed. If it's just a melody, the melody though is composed, created by somebody who is not, not a Yid, not someone who's special or holy in any particular way. Are we concerned that the soul of that person is somehow implanted within that melody, and then when I listen to that shira, maybe some of that avira, some of that energy, will now be infused within me. And there are those more in the Hasidish world who were concerned for this. If Nachman of Breslov speaks about this idea. What's that? Oh, so, so we mentioned that the concept, can we use nigunim that come from, you know, non-holy places? So on one hand you could argue, and this is what you find in some of the Hasidish svarim, if the nigun itself, the melody was composed by someone where there is a real tumah, you want to stay away from that. On the other hand, we do find historically that if you look at every community in the Jewish world, what kind of music did Jews listen to in Turkey? What kind of music did Jews listen to in Argentina? What kind of music did Jews listen to living in America? Usually, it's something very similar to what everyone else listens to. Right? Ever noticed that? It happens to be, maybe they're using psukim from Tehillim. But the general theme, the, 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 the feel of the music, is very much based on all our cultural association. Ramosha Feinstein was of the opinion that the melody itself doesn't contain any negativity. And if there's a particular march that was uh, utilized by Russian soldiers, and now it's made into a, uh, a simcha song, that's not a problem. If anything, you're taking a kawach, you're taking something that's this raw power, and you're uplifting it. Now, there happens to be a sharetziyam. Uh, Take a look here in source number 20. Question is, does this comment of the Chavetz Chaim seem to be in contrast to what we just quoted from Moshe Feinstein. Chavetz Chaim writes that 
when singing a child to sleep at night. One should not sing Shiria Govim. We said in the beginning, those are songs of lust or desire. Because by singing these types of song to a child, you're creating within the child a negative nature. It happens to be, putting aside what you're doing to your little son or daughter, there is an iser of singing Shiria Govim. Because it awakens, it incites the Yetzahara within a person. The question though is like this. Putting aside that perhaps what I'm doing for myself is not appropriate, what does he mean that it's, it's somehow breeding within this child a negative teva. Is the child old enough to understand the words that I'm saying? So one answer might be, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a little boy, a little girl, where they pretty much understand what you're saying and the content of the song. And that's why it could be potentially harmful. What he might mean, though, is that maybe even a little baby, where there's no Havana, there's no understanding, they don't know what the words mean, they don't know what you're referring to. But nonetheless, if I'm singing a song, Shirya Govin, and, and that's what's happening within me, so that I'm transferring that to my child. That doesn't necessarily mean, and I think this is what Ramosha Feinstein would, would say, it doesn't mean that because objectively that melody has now been stamped as contaminated because it was used for an inappropriate song. But if I'm singing that inappropriate song, I'm singing something that's animalistic, that's, that's degrading to, to my, my humanness, so then even a little child can sense that, and it does have an impact. However, if there's a song, a melody, a nigan that's been out there, regardless of what the shorish, what the source was going back 50 years or 500 years, we have the ability to uplift it and to be makadesh, that particular melody. So we have here is, yes, there are a few types of categories that, generally speaking, are problematic. We stay away from that. Can there be music that's coming from a non-Torah source that's not usur? Of course. The main thing we have to remind ourselves of is because of the power of Shira, in the words of the Reishis Chachma, that Shira is Gorem Devekis. What we listen to, right, the music that we enjoy, connects us to that person that culture, and that overall worldview. So what comes out practically is there might be many forms of music that are not usser. Not everything has to be usser. But a person who's a Benaliyah, who wants to keep on striving, trying to find the outlet of listening to music where I could feel connected in a healthy way, to the person, the culture, the framework in which that music is composed, 
then the more of a positive impact it could have on me. We should all have the bracha of listening to good, uplifting music that only brings us closer to Hashem. Have a wonderful evening.